there and they're like, oh my gosh, are you watching this? Are you watching this? They are really about to crucify Christ. Like, are you watching this? And they're like, yeah, Satan, we see it. Are you excited? Yeah, like we just won. Hooray, hooray, right? They're having a party. I mean, they're having a blast, right? And then he gets crucified, right? And then he says, Lord, uh, Father, into, into your hand, I commend my spirit. And boom, he gives up the ghost. And I can see Satan like, we really just pulled that off. I mean, we got Judas to betray him. We got him to go and get wrongly accused. We got him to even go to the cross. And he still, we won. Yes. We about to run this joint because he's, day one passes. And they're like, he's still, <laughs> he's still in there. You know, when you wake up and you can't believe it happened still. You woke up the next day and something great happened to you. And you're like, man, I still can't believe that it happened. Oh, my gosh. And then, and then day two comes, and he's like, guys, I know this was two days ago, but we're so excited. Like, we crucified the Christ. And then day three came. Church, oh, that gave me chills. Church, and then day three came. <laughs> then day three came, and Christ said, mm. all right, well, let me go ahead and shake the slumber off. And I'm going to get up and I'm going to fold my clothes to insinuate to you that I'm not even done yet. So Satan, you, and your homeboys could take that. Paul says something powerful. He says, death, where is thy sting? Because I don't know about y'all, I read the back of the book. And death and hell, and that dragon are going to be cast into a place called the lake of fire. And I can see his smile and turn upside down as he realized that forever the prophecy mandated to us in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, that said that the serpent will bruise his heel, but he will bruise his head, fully came to fruition. And from that point, devil then had no more power. The gospel. Church, today I want to talk to you about a message that I've entitled Victory Galore. Victory Galore. Because what I want to do is I want to give you a breakdown of not all, but five of the biggest things that Christ's victory gave us. Him rising from the dead and turning the devil's joy into utter fear gave us, first off, if all he gave us was that, it was enough. But God's a God who likes to give. You ever heard that phrase, you can't outgive God? And he gave us five things with his victory that I want to give you. So let's pray real quick, and then we're going to dive into this, because I'm excited. Dear Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your son. We thank you for this resurrection and the power that we now have that we can walk in because of it. Lord, I pray that you would bind that devil and his forces because he's still mad. 2,000 some odd years later, he's still salty. He's still upset. And I would be too. But I'm thankful I don't have to be because that victory was for me. It's for all of us, Lord. And I pray that you would help us to walk in the deliverance that you've given us. As you've broken all the chains of bondage, that you tore the veil between us and God, that gave us unlimited access to the Holy of Holies, I thank you for all that you've given us, God. Help us to come to you and worship, not just on Easter because it's Easter, but that we would move forward in life, praising and worshiping the God who saves. And we'll give you all the honor and glory for it all. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Before we get into the main crux of the service, I want to give you a quick recap of the week that Christ had. I know we had a little bit of that before, but let me give you some more detail. We find out that Jesus comes to the disciples, and as they break bread, he says, one of you that dips your hand in this bread with me is going to betray me. It's going to betray me. And then we, and then we see, and then we see, all of the disciples asking, Lord, is it I? Is it I? Is it I? And what ends up happening is we find out that the one that's going to betray him is a man named Judas Iscariot. 
Judas. Judas is able to be persuaded to give up the God of the universe for a few pieces of silver equated to slave money. And we see in other parts when Judas realized what he did, he tried to actually go and get his, give them back the money and say, no, let, let him go. You can have your money back. And of course, the, the Pharisees were like, we have the Christ. So why do we want slave money back? We're rich anyway. Like, we don't need that. And the Bible tells us that Judas actually goes out and he hangs himself out of the guilt and the grief. We see that Jesus comes, on his first, comes to his first trial. And Jesus is standing there during the Passover week, which is when they're allowed to pardon one criminal. There's a man there. His name is Barabbas. And Barabbas, the name, we don't think that's actually his real name. The word Barabbas is something equated to someone of a criminal stature. So Pilate comes before the crowd and says, it's Passover week and we can pardon one criminal. Do you want... Barabbas, the man who committed an insurrection, he revolted against the government and, and people were killed in his revolt, a murderer, or do you want the Christ? The one who's done nothing but in his full-time ministry but heal the sick and cure the lame, cure disease, raise from the dead, done nothing but give his entire life to people for elements of good. Regardless of if you believe he's actually the Christ or not, he's a good man. And he's innocent. And the crowd goes, we want Barabbas. And Pilate goes, are you sure? I mean, he didn't do anything wrong. And they just continue to chant, we want Barabbas. We want Barabbas. And so because of the crowd and honoring what the crowd said, he ordered the soldiers to cut Barabbas free from his shackles. And he was pardoned to be a free man. He turns back to the crowd and says, crowd, what do you want me to do with the Christ? And he said, crucify. Crucify. Now, what I want you to do as part of your today is I want you to just Google Roman crucifixion. Because what they would do is they would line roads in Rome with crosses and they would crucify people, and there will be a mixture of people who are dying and already dead on those crosses as the Roman emperors would, would go through there and feel in victory as they would walk by corpse after corpse after corpse of people they've crucified. They didn't just ask for Barabbas. They asked for Christ to suffer the most tormenting punishment known to that day. We don't just want him to, we don't want, we don't just want the criminal for you. We want you to, we want you to, to murder him in the most brutal fashion you've got. And so they did. What happens next is they now sent Jesus Christ to a whipping post where they have something called the cat of nine tails. The cat of nine tails was one whip that had nine whips coming out of it also. They would lace those nine strands, and it's not even just for Christ. Look at Roman crucifixion, and they would lace those strands with shards of bone, pottery, and glass. It was said that 40 stripes was absolute death. No one could survive it. And so what they were going to do is they, the law was 40 stripes, save one. And so what they would do is they would tie them to a post, and it would be these long strands, and, the, and, and the, Roman, the Roman executioner, I guess you can call him, would stand back and he'd get his whip, make sure that it's in, and whip him. And what would happen with these whips is they would come around being laced with those sharp pieces of glass and pottery and bone, and they would come and they would, they would grab all parts of the body, and they would come from the back, and they'd wrap all the way over to the stomach, and right when they got a good hook, they would just rip it right back out. One. Then they would step back, shake all the flesh off of it, throw it again. They would wrap around, 
and they'd pull it again. Two. 37 to go. Thirty-seven to go. People who get hit with the cat of nine tails don't survive it. Because by the time you get to like five, you're already your organs are already hanging out and you're 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 like Pastor, that's graphic. No, you need to hear it. We find out that when he was done. Bible says that Jesus wasn't even able to be recognized. Like that movie, The Passion of Christ, doesn't even do it justice. Because when he was done, they had Christ looking like ground beef. They're not done. 39 stripes later, he's a bloody mess. And they begin to mock. All hell, king of the Jews. So then they get this robe that they put on him, and of course they put the robe on him, and if if you've ever had a cut on your knee and put a Band-Aid on it, and try to get that Band-Aid off after blood's dried, ow, they put an entire robe on him. And the Bible says they would rip that robe right off of him. All hell, king of the Jews. And then they would get a crown of thorns, rose thorns, intermitted into a crown, and they would put it on his head. And the Bible said that they got a reed, like a mallet, and they beat those thorns into a skull. All hell, king of the Jews. They would put a a garment over his head, and they would beat him, and they'd say, tell us which one of us hit you. It gets worse. After that's all said and done, they now make him carry his cross. They would make the criminals carry their crosses too, and oftentimes they wouldn't even be strong enough if they even made it to this point. And we see the sides of the road lined with people as they chant, yeah, woo crucify him. And he would carry that cross. And the Bible says he was, he was so weak, someone had to help him carry it. This heavy, massive wooden cross. And then what they would do is they would lay that cross. When he finally gets there, they would lay that cross on the ground. And they would lay him on it. And they would take those nine-inch nails. And they would pound them into his wrists. Next wrist. And they would do the same. Doom, doom, doom. They would cross his feet right where that hole is in the joint of your foot. And they would send a nail right through both feet. Then what they would do is they would have the Roman guards get that cross and lift it up. And what they would do is they would, they would have a deep hole in the floor the ground where they would drop that cross into and when they would drop that cross into that hole it would dislocate every major joint in their body what it's now because the because now their joints are dislocated they would sink like this immediately cutting off of their air cutting off the the prisoners air supply so in order for them to breathe they would now have to push up on the nails in their feet and the nails in their wrists to now get their body to a place where their lungs could now expand properly to get a couple of breaths while they can withstand the pain only to sink right back into suffocation. And they would have to do that for hours until they finally didn't have the strength to pull themselves up on the pain anymore and die from asphyxiation. We know that while Christ was up there and they would, they would laugh, they would mock, they'd make fun of them, they'd be stripped of, all, stripped of all their clothes, stripped of all their dignity. The prophecy said they couldn't break their bones, but we saw that the, they thought that he was already dead when he finally said, Lord, number one, he says something that 
that we see happening twice in scriptures when Stephen said, Lord, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. And for the first time in scripture, for the first time in scripture, Stephen looks up as he's slipping in and out of consciousness. And he looks up and for the first and only time we see it present in scripture, we see the son stand up on the right hand of the father as he awaits for Stephen to come. Christ was the first one to go through what Stephen did. And we see Christ look up and for the first time in an eternity, God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit are separated. As Christ now bears the sins of everyone past, present, and future. Imagine being in an eternity past. And saying, Lord, do I really have to go do that? You don't believe me? Look at the week before his, before his crucifixion as he was in the Garden of Gethsemane. And the Bible says he was under so much stress, he sweat as if it was great drops of blood. We see that happening sometimes with, with weightlifters as they're doing great lengths of work. And sometimes they would be lifting weights so heavy that they would... Their sweat would be infused with bloodlets because the pressure of the weight that they are carrying is so big. Imagine carrying the weight of an eternity of people. And Christ and God has to turn his back and say, I can't, I can't look at you. Not only am I separated from you, I can't even, I can't even look at you. I can't even look at you. And Christ, for the first time in utter bewilderment, the Son of Man goes, God, why, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Oh, no, 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 no. You're, you're supposed to be the only one that's, that doesn't leave me. All, the, all the, the thousands of people that used to follow me just last week, they're all gone. All of my disciples, the, the Peter that said, I would not ever, I would never curse you. I'd never, I'd never do that to you. I would never, I would never let anything happen to you, was watching from a distance as they crucified him. And for the first time ever... He's alone. He's by himself. The Bible said he could have called 12,000 angels to come down and just wipe it all out. Could you imagine? Could you imagine God standing there, turning his back, and you can see, the, I, can, I can see Michael the archangel, mad, ready to just go down in there and go to work. And God says, turn around. Mike was like, God, what? Turn around. And all of those 12,000 angels now, as heaven itself does an about face, and God is, and now God in the flesh is not only watching the people in front of him chanting for his death, but the heavenly host that he's known for all eternity now has forsaken him also. And then we, we see that Tetelestai, it is finished. And he finally says, Lord, into your hands I commend my spirit. And the spirit passes. We see now a darkness come upon the earth and, a, and an earthquake happens. And at that moment we see in scripture that people begin to realize what they had just done. But it was too late. It was too late. They cast lots for his robes. We then see one of his former disciples come and they, they him and, and Mary Magdalene and, and his mother, they come and, and, and John, Mary Magdalene, and his mother get him down off the cross. And they carried him to a tomb that wasn't even his. And they lay him in there for three days. I want you to think about this. For three days, Christ had to suffer an eternity of punishment. How many of that? How many people in here are confused by that statement? You're confused. an eternity of punishment in three days, because the payment for sin, the wages of sin, is death. An eternal, an eternal death. 
So Christ is now in a place where he is in utter separation from God. And I, and I, and I, I can imagine this because what does the Bible say? That a day with the Lord, a day with the Lord is, 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 as, a, is as a thousand. So imagine being one with God forever. And then all of a sudden at some fixed point in time, you are now suffering an eternity of torment. But day three happened. And they rolled away that stone. And he wasn't there. And there were all kinds of stuff. You know, the guards looked in there and they, they realized that he was gone. They freaked out. Because that's their head. And so now they had to come up with a plan because Jesus Christ said, Jesus Christ says, in three, you'll destroy this temple, but in three days I'll build it back up again. And they didn't want to take him at his word. And so now they now they pull up and he's gone. And so what do they do? Now they now the government has to come up with a with a scandal. At night while the guards were sleeping, we'll say that at night while the guards were sleeping, though, the, the, the disciples came in and they and they stole his body to fulfill their prophecy. Tell that to the 500 people that Christ appeared to before he ascended. Church, we're here today to celebrate a victory. These are happy tears. These are happy tears. Because I know where I'm going. I know that the devil has no say. That this flesh can't do anything to me, not anymore. Because my, my shackles, just like your shackles, are all gone. We can now walk in deliverance and then have the blessed hope that we will stand before an almighty God today. And he said, well done, my good and faithful servant. And I will get to look at the Christ and see his wrists. And see the holes in his feet. And be eternally in remembrance of what he did for me. Church, he gave us some victories. Let me give you the victories that he gave us real quick. If you're a note-taking person, turn over to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The book of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Because, yeah, that was horrible. Yeah, that was sad. Yeah, that was, that was hard, to, hard to grasp. But the worst part is over. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 56, it says this. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. Number one, if you're a note-taking person, Christ's death brought us victory over sin. It brought us victory over sin. The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. The law, people who, people who claim, who adhere only to the Old Testament, don't realize that the sole purpose of the law, the five books of the Pentateuch, right? The sole purpose of the law was to let us know that we were sinners in need of a savior. With 600 plus laws, there is no way that anybody could be able to, to maintain those things. Because as soon as you mess up, the Bible says what? If you offend in one part of the law, you, you offend in all. You offend in all. And, you are all. and then you are now thenceforth worthy of death. What the law did was the law was not there for you to be able to maintain a perfect life because it's impossible, because we're imperfect people. It was there to let us know that we were all sinners through inability to uphold the standard of the law, showing us that we were imperfect and being thus in need of a Savior. His death meant no more doing what you don't want to do. What did Paul say? The things that I want to do, I don't do, and the things that I don't do, I want to do. But Christ said, listen to me, there is now thenceforth no condemnation in me. Sin, you don't have to live a life anymore that is now consumed by something that was only going to destroy you in the first place. What does the Bible say? Lust, when it is conceived, it brings forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, it brings forth death. Sin has no choice but to be a blood-sucking monster that wants your complete and utter demise. In crisis, if you read the back of the book, sin and death were thenceforth cast into the lake of fire. Christ dying on the cross for us, rising from that tomb, meant that we no longer had to succumb to sin. His death granted us victory 
over a flesh that is selfish and only has its best interests in mind. The same power that raised Christ from the dead is the very same power that equips you to live a victorious Christian life. In order for you to walk in the light as he is in the light. Why? Because we talk about this all the time. What does the Bible say? When a man is tempted, let him not say that he is tempted of God. But let him, say, let him be tempted when he is pulled out by his own lusts and consumed. You now have an out to not have to worry about being caught up in the sin or the darkness of sin anymore. He says now, through the victory of Christ Jesus, you can now walk in a light where darkness cannot dwell. You can be free. You can be free. You can be free over the bondage. You can be free over all the things that seek to slow you down, the weights that so easily besets us. He says all the things that try to weigh you down and fight for your peace and fight for your joy and fight for your happiness and fight for your peace of mind and fight for your freedom, all of those things are now null and void because Christ died for it. It no longer has a place. You can be free. You can walk in freedom. Imagine the jailer coming to your cell with the keys, unlocking it, unlocking your shackles, saying, go ahead and go, and then getting in the cell and closing the door behind him and handing you now the keys. Let me tell you what your goal is now. Your goal is now to get out of the, because let me tell you what Jesus did. He went back for us. So now our goal is to go out and to tell the entire world that salvation is present to all people and it's free. Because the judge himself got in the jail cell for you. Sin doesn't have a say. Sin doesn't have a say. I don't have to worry about the condemnation that comes with it because the Bible says that if we, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It is a win-win situation because the truth of the matter is your life has made, your life wrote a contract that said, hey, my name, I, Xavier Small, hereby testify that I am a sinner and that I have done wrong, I have trespassed against the law, and therefore I now deserve a place of eternal torment called hell with my John Hancock at the bottom. And let me tell you what happened. Christ said, guess what? I'm the loophole. No more. No more contract. No more sin binding you to an eternal punishment. I'm your out. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. But God commended his love toward us, and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Therefore, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord, church, shall be saved. Sin doesn't have a say. You can be free. You can be free. His death, his resurrection brought us victory galore. Number two, if you're taking notes, look at verse 55 of the same chapter. When he says here, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? Number two, he brought us victory over death. He brought us victory over death. We are talking about this last week. You can, you can be born twice, but you can also die twice. You understand? What did Christ tell Nicodemus? You cannot, unless you, be, no man can be, see the kingdom of God unless he be born again. And then Nicodemus says, how can I be born again if I'm old? Can I return to my mother's womb and then be born again? That's silly. He says, no. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. He says, you must be spiritually born again. If you're in there in this room under the sound of my voice, you need to understand this, is that there is a God who loves you so much that he sent his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And all you have to do is ask for it. You have to be born twice, but you, can, you don't have to die twice. The Bible says it is appointed unto man to die, and then after this, the judgment. Every single one of us, no matter the age, are eventually going to face an entity called death. That's inevitable. 
But let me tell you why you don't have to fear it. Because we have this thing called the blessed hope, which means that if you know him as your personal Lord and Savior, you will rise again. The word death from a New Testament standpoint means separation from God. Separation. The wages of sin is death. He's not talking about the physical one, silly. He's talking about the spiritual one, where you are now absent of God and the Holy Spirit. He says, you don't have to face that one. What does 1 Thessalonians say? It says, and the Lord will descend from the clouds, and the trump of the archangels shall sound, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. And then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with him in the clouds. You've got to be born twice, but you only have to die once. And that's even pending if the Lord doesn't come back early. I don't fear death. Because I know that when I open my eyes that millisecond later, I'm going to be in presence of the eternal Father. I'm going to be able to run up on Adam and say, yeah, I know we're not supposed to sit in here, but you got to show me. Boy, me and Adam are going to have some words in Jesus' name. And all the saints that we read about will be face to face with. And I believe the Apostle Paul, being, no, being arguably the greatest Christian to ever live, will say, I'm no different from you. I'm here dwelling in eternal glory with the Father, just like you are. What does the Bible say? Where there is no more sickness, no more pain, no more death. Forever glorified with the Lord. Pastor, you sound so naive. Look at you Christians using the Bible as a crutch. You're so right. As a matter of fact, go ahead and get me a gurney and wheel me up on out of here because I'm depending on him fully. And I don't have to sweat wondering what's going to happen because I know that I'm going to be able to go in peace because I know where I'm going. When I'm ready, y'all go know. Go ahead and just let me go. Can you imagine the, imagine the Apostle Paul? Remember the Bible says the Apostle Paul died a couple times? Imagine being able to be in a place where you get to fix your eyes on all that glory land has. You know, we talk about, we had a funeral a couple weeks ago, and we talked about Lazarus at that funeral. You know how mad Lazarus had to be to open his eyes and be like, what on the what in the world? Where am I at? Where, where am I at? Back on earth. What? Listen to me, boy. If I knew that, if, man, if that could have happened to me and I found out y'all brought me back, I'd be mad. Don't even think about it. Don't even think about it. We had victory over sin. We had victory over death. Number three, we had victory over hell. Turn over to John chapter three. A verse that many of us can quote from memory. John chapter three. We got victory over hell. And listen to me, y'all. I was just talking with a friend of mine a couple of days ago. And when I present the gospel to people, I don't use hell as a scare tactic. Because that's not even the important part. Is that the love of Christ is so ever-present. It's not even about where you're going to go if you don't. It's about where you get to go if you do. John chapter 3, verse 16, what does it say? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. I gave you that preface about hell because I, when I, when I, what I'm about to say is not meant to scare you but you need to be informed. I believe hell consists of a few things. Number one, who knows? Hell is what? Hot. 
We know that the, we know that hell is a place of, of of complete and utter darkness. We also know. So we, we know that number one, it's hot, right? Really, really, really hot, unsubstantially hot. Number two, it's really dark. Bible says a thick darkness, a tangible darkness. Number three, it says where the worm dieth not. I believe that is threefold. That is twofold. Number one, the word worm there in the Greek is the word conscience. Let me tell you the word, let me tell you the worst part about hell. It's not going to be the demons that torment you, as the scripture says. It won't be the heat. It won't even be the darkness. It won't be that feeling of falling forever. I believe the worst part is you spending an eternity thinking about what you should have done. What is the definition of, of regret? The truth seen too late. Imagine spending time thinking, there was my chance. There was my chance. There was my chance. But the last thing people need to know about hell is that the hell wasn't even created for you. The Bible says a, a place prepared for the devil and his angels. That's why Christ, came, Christ could have just been like, well, y'all are some sinners anyway. Let me go ahead and just let y'all just go. He said, man, y'all was not supposed to go there. So let me go ahead and just send Christ to get you out. But you're going to have to receive that gift. He says, listen to me, my son dying on the cross for you, that gift of God being eternal life, means that you no longer are a resident of that place. You can dwell in everlasting freedom. Number one, we said that victory over sin. Number two, victory over death. Number three, victory over hell. Number four, turn over to 2 Timothy chapter 1. 2 Timothy chapter 1. This is my life verse, y'all. 2 Timothy chapter 1. Number 4. It says here in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7. For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Number 4. His victory brought us victory over fear. I think it's safe to say that fear is a very controlling mechanism. It's a very controlling mechanism. I heard a story one time about these men who were hunting in the African plains. And what they would do is they would, you know, set up camp and they would put the mosquito net, you know what I'm saying, over that to kind of save them from the bugs. And while they were out there during their hunt one night, they felt a hot gust on their face. And the man opened his eyes to see a fully grown African lion breathing in his face. What happened, though, is that the lion was perplexed because in the darkness he felt a substance there but had no idea what it was. He had walked into the mosquito net. And being confused as to what it was, the lion then turned around and went on his way. Fear was the only thing that stood between that lion and a midnight snack. Do you see where I'm going, church? So many times we allow fear and the, and the binding mechanism that it is, that constricting mechanism that it is to go forward and walk in the purpose that God has called us to. And the reason why it's my life verse is because I know that I'm a very type A personal person. I did that. I did the Briggs-Myers test. I'm a lion. You know, I did all that other stuff. But the truth is, I get scared so often. I get scared so often. And I have to constantly remind myself that you no longer have to be afraid. Because Christ and the victory that he brought through his resurrection said, fear, you have no place here. And I don't know who the person in this room is that is dealing with fear. It could be over the next stage in your life. It could be about taking a step. It could be about moving forward. It could be about whatever is going on in your life. And, and fear is there because it's trying to constrict you. It's there trying to bind you. But you don't have to give way to fear any longer. You are free. You are free. We've been talking about how to walk in righteousness and not walk it out of the flesh. Someone told me this this past week. 
he said, starve sin. Don't be sin conscious, be righteous conscious. So remember we were talking about walking, and if you're scared to trip, you don't worry about not tripping. You just walk right. He says, because I have completely effaced the, the elements of fear, you now have the beginnings and the power to be strong, to be brave, and move forward in what it is that you believe God wants you to do with your life or in your calling. Fear is going to try and be that bounding mechanism. Because check this out. Paul, right after he got saved on the road to Damascus, he had a fear that he wasn't going to be able to be used. Why? He spent all of his life persecuting and crucifying Christians. And they, were, they had their hand out at first like, ah, what's he doing here? And he could have allowed his fear to say, Lord, I can't do it. But God made a way. And can I let you know that God has made a way for you? May I remind you that the Bible says that no weapon formed against you shall prosper. Can I remind you of what the Lord says about what he thinks of you, thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you an expected end? Like church, what a, I fear being alone. The Bible says, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. And lo, I am with you even until the end of the world. Lord, I'm scared to go to sleep because my mind races and I'm overcome with anxiety. Be careful for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God which passes all understanding shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Fancy phrase to say, don't worry, God's God, your peace comes from him. That's why I'm so adamant about you getting in your word and reading what it says because there's a whole host of promises that you can't claim because you don't know they exist. Church, I don't say this pridefully, but I'm not scared of Jack because I already know what my Lord says. If you kill me, it's a win-win situation. If I'm here, then I'm going to proclaim the Lord and, and spread his gospel and preach Christ and him crucified. If you kill me, then I get to be in eternity with the Father. You lose, you lose. Amen. Ain't no fear. And he says, you don't have to be afraid of anything because I have not given you a spirit of fear. I've given you a spirit of power and of love and of a sound mind. As a song, how does the song go? You're an overcomer. Because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Because when you are weak, he is strong. Because his strength is made perfect in your church, man. His resurrection brought us some victories, y'all. Number one, victory over sin. Number two, victory over death. Number three, victory over hell. Number four, victory over fear. And lastly, number five, turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. And look at verse 1. There is therefore. Anybody else in their Bible notice something special about that word there? Anything, anybody see anything different in their Bible? It's all capitalized. That's a conjunction. Not, that's a conjunction. Or what do you call it? It's not a conjunction. What's the word? Is it a conjunction? Transition word. It's a transition word. He says, because that's a piggyback off of verse 25. I thank the Lord of, of chapter 7. I thank, the God, I thank God through Christ Jesus, our Lord. So then, with the mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. Verse, chapter one, uh, verse 1 of chapter 8. There is therefore no condemnation. To them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. Number five, lastly, you have a victory over condemnation. You have a victory over condemnation. Pastor, what do you mean? Satan wants nothing more. Your flesh wants nothing more than to destroy you. But if, he, but if you are someone who is in Christ... You no longer have to worry about him because you already have the victory. 
But what Satan will try to do is try to destroy you from the inside out. And that's why every time you struggle with sin, he says, wow, you dirty dog. Look at you. Mm, that's another nail in his arms. It's another nail in his foot. Look at that. You're the reason that Christ had to die because you're just trash. You're just vile and base and you don't even deserve it. You deserve a rot in hell. As a matter of fact, you need to just go ahead and go. You may say, Pastor, what are you saying? The very same thoughts that creep into your mind when you struggle. Because what's he trying to do? Riddle you with guilt? Riddle you with condemnation? But last I checked, the very first verse of Romans chapter 8 says, There is therefore no condemnation to those that are in Christ, that walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. He says, you don't have any reason anymore to feel guilt. He says, what do I require of you? I don't require you to be the Apostle Paul. I don't require, I don't require you to be like Lewis and Lois. I don't, and Lois, I, don't, I don't require you to be like Abigail or Esther. I don't, I don't require you to be like any of those people. I require you to be broken. The Bible literally says, what does the Lord require of thee? A broken and a contrite heart. This is my niece, Alasia. If I hurt Alasia, I don't apologize to Alasia because I've done wrong. That's not why I've done it. I have done wrong, and I should make it right because that's what, right, that's what you should do. But I go and try to make it right because I love Alasia. That's the difference between condemnation and brokenness. Condemnation says, wow, you're trash. Wow, you're just done. God says, no, 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 no. I want you to understand that what you've done hurt me. Do you realize, and I'll say this and then we'll be done. Do you realize that when David sinned against Bathsheba, his prayer to God was very different? Because if you look at what David did in his sin against Bathsheba, with Bathsheba, he, number one, I believe Bathsheba didn't have a say. Because what did David say? He said, go and fetch her for me. And you don't tell the king no. So he took her out of her own free will. She was minding her business. And by the way, you know that Bathsheba was, that song goes, uh, your faith was strong, but you needed proof. You saw her bathing on the roof. Her beauty in the moonlight overthrew you. That's scripturally inaccurate. David was the one up on the roof and looked into and if you read the scriptures he was where he was not supposed to be and he looked down and saw her he said and he lusted after her said fetch her for me so now he gets her and he does things with her out of her will i believe scripture doesn't say that but i believe if she didn't say no she didn't have a choice so she just let it happen she then has a child with him and the lord says that you're going to lose that baby and david weeps and he mourns and all those different things and the Lord was true to his promise, and David lost his child. But then we find out that the sword was never going to depart out of his house. So then one of David's sons rapes his half-sister Tamar, and his other brother tries to kill him for doing that to his sister, and the other brother tries to overthrow his... David caused a lot of problems with what he just... Not, not to mention Uriah. He calls Uriah, one of the captains in his army, to come home. Says, Uriah, you're a good man. Go and spend some time with your wife trying to cover it up, right? And Uriah, being a strong and valiant man, said, I can't do that. Well, not with my men, by the way, where David, kings were supposed to be the first ones to battle. David was chilling at home. Uriah said, I can't do that now while my men are at war. I got to be where they're at. He said, no, just take a night and you can go back tomorrow. He says, go home to your wife, man. Go spend some time with her. Go spend some time with her. He says, no, I can't do that. So then what does David do? David gets Uriah drunk and says, man, go. And David still, uh, Uriah still in his drunken stupor says, I'm not doing it. We see that the Bible tells us that Uriah slept outside because he would not go into his house. So then what does David do? He gets his scribe and he crafts a letter and says, Uriah, go ahead and bring this back to, the, to your superior when you get there. And Uriah bravely, proudly, and triumphantly goes back to his army with his death sentence in his hand.
he hands it to him. And the Bible says that Uriah stands on that, on that front line. And when they say charge, everyone steps back except for Uriah. And Uriah is killed in battle. Pastor, why would you tell us all of that? Because David's prayer is, is important. When David prays to God, he says this. Lord, against thee and thee only have I sinned. David is my favorite biblical character because David is the perfect example of what humanity is and how humanity should operate itself. Because David messed up a lot of times. But one thing you can't hold against David is that David was great at presenting himself before God. He says, Lord, I want you to search me and know me so that you can be, you can be just when you judge me. God doesn't want you to about the condemnation that the law tried to bring you anymore. He says, I want you to be broken for me. Know that when you sin, no matter who it's against, you've sinned against me. You've trespassed against me, and that hurts me. Don't be condemned. Make it right. You no longer have any more condemnation. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? We spent some time today looking at some important things the fact that Christ conquered death and he conquered hell and that made us free as free can be but what that also did what that also did was create a way for you to not have to spend a place in the eternal lake of torment so here's my question for you with heads bowed and eyes closed if there's anyone that can say pastor I do not know 100% sure that if I died today, heaven would be my home. I don't know, but I would like to. Anyone, anyone like that in here? I don't know. I don't know if I died today that heaven would be my home. I don't want to go to a place called hell. You can be sure. The Bible says that these things have I written unto you, that you may know that you have eternal life, and that you may believe on the name of the Son of God. So I'll ask again. Is there anyone that says, Pastor, I don't know, but I would like to. Anybody like that? OK. 